Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked will perish. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and renew my life according to your word. Amen. One of the most quotable lines of television from the last few years is from Disney's The Mandalorian. Yes, this is the way. To be a Mandalorian is to live with a commitment to the way, a code of traditions and ideals that they all must uphold. The way is the path to a good, noble, and purposeful life. Christianity is also concerned with the good life. Blessed is the biblical term. And that life also requires a way. Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. The book of Acts describes early Christians as those who belong to the way. The book of Psalms was and is a hymn book, a prayer book, and an instruction book for God's people. As such, it's been used by his people in all ages of church history. Moses and David wrote and used psalms. Israel used them for prayer and praise. Jesus sang psalms with his disciples. The early church prayed them. Paul used them in his epistles. You can also make the case that the psalms led Martin Luther to the Protestant Reformation. The early churchman Athanasius wrote, All the books of Scripture are inspired by God and useful for instruction. Each book of Scripture is like a garden that grows one particular kind of fruit. The Psalter, however, is a garden which, besides its particular fruit, grows also those of all the rest. As a miniature Bible within the Bible, it's no surprise then that the Psalms are quite concerned with the way. And that concern is evident from the very first line. Psalms 1 and 2 should be read both individually and as a unit. As a unit, they're an introduction to the whole book, telling us something about what is to come in the rest of this book of Psalms. Jim Boyce called them a magnificent gateway to this extraordinary collection. 
Christopher Ashe described the first two Psalms as two grand pillars, one on each side of the entrance gate to the book of Psalms. And you can see those pillars if you look closely at verses 1, 1, and 2, 11. There they are, left and right, inviting us to walk through using the same word, bracketing our understanding of what comes ahead. Blessed. Psalm 1, blessed is. Psalm two eleven. blessed are. If you're trying to find the good life, if you want to be happy, The Psalms are here to teach you. This is the way. Though we'll quickly find it's not one way, but two ways that are the focus of Scripture's wisdom literature. God doesn't just tell us the way to blessing. He also tells us a lot about the alternative. Jesus did this in the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke of not one, but two gates. And two roads, two trees and types of fruit, two houses and foundations. As another man preached, it's the difference between those who are in love with sin and those who love God. The psalm begins, blessed is, inviting us all into the way of blessing. In Hebrew, the word is plural. Oh, the blessedness. It's a benediction or at least an offer of one. Real happiness, it claims. The kind that transcends circumstances and even transcends this earthly life. Real happiness is attainable. The deepest sense of well-being can be found not as a reward, but as the result of a certain kind of living. How? This is the way. Now, this description begins with three negative statements, maybe not what we'd expect. Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. A central feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism, different words that repeat a similar idea. Sit becomes stand, becomes walk. Counsel to weigh, to seat. And wicked, sinners, mockers. That the way of blessing is first described to us from the negative is counterintuitive. But commentators point out at least three advantages of this approach. First, that the psalmist begins where we are. We don't start out on the way. We start out being sinners. And if we do eventually enter into the straight gate upon the narrow road that leads to life, it is by God's grace. Second, it shows us from the beginning that there are two ways and not just one. The way of blessing happens by intentional act, not by default, because there is also a way that leads to death rather than blessing. And finally, any positive affirmation to have meaning must have a negative to go with it. If godliness is the way of the one who delights in the law of the Lord, there must also be an ungodliness. And we need to know how to identify it. 
That's especially important because what you're hearing from the world every day of your life is that the other way is much better than God's way of blessing. The counsel of the wicked is that their way is more fun, it's freer, and it's more fulfilling. You are tempted and encouraged from all directions to walk in the way of sinners. Bible teacher Roger Ellsworth writes, the advice of the godless is all around you. It crops up in personal conversations, in magazine and newspaper articles, in movies and television shows. But the righteous person does not govern his life on the basis of bad advice from bad people. The righteous person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The parallelism of these three phrases may also represent a declining progression, things getting worse and worse. The first step is just being influenced by evil and then of identifying with evil. It's ours. And last, becoming an influence for evil. This is the other way that is available to us, the other path that we can take through life. Sin can be our love and our lifestyle, and for many, this is the way. Influences are hard to resist if our principles aren't otherwise grounded in godliness. Kids, I know what you're up against. I was a kid. I was a teenager. I wasn't that special. Many friends and classmates and teammates have no humility before God and no desire to walk in his way. And, and yet every choice you make represents another step along either his way or theirs. Every stand that you take or don't take reveals your allegiance. And it doesn't get any easier when you grow up. Another preacher wrote sympathetically, from the school playground to the senior care home, we instinctively want to say the same things as the wicked, to laugh at the same jokes as the wicked, to share the same values of the wicked, to take the same life decisions as the wicked. Temptation is always there. The counsel of the wicked is ever before us. Whatever your stage of life, this will be an insidious temptation for you. It will never be easy to march out of step with an insistent world. And yet the psalmist says, blessing comes to the one who emphatically does not march to the beat of the world's drum. If the parallelism does represent a progression, sitting in the seat of scoffers is the low point. Judges sit in judgment. It's supposed to convey weightiness. They presume a kind of authority for their own position. Satan convinced Eve that she should sit in judgment of God, that God was not good, and that what was best for her was to become like God by having her eyes opened, eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. 
and from her imagined high moral perch, she looked down on God and sat down in judgment on his word and his works. This is what the scoffer is doing all the time. When the scoffer mocks the righteous, ridicules them for godly choices, denies God's power and authority in the world, makes a laughing stock of God's goodness. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, The seat of the scorner may be very lofty, but it is also very near to the gate of hell. The way to blessing is verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Hebrew word is Torah, which sometimes only refers to the law of Moses, but a lot of times, like here, is used to refer to all of Scripture. And the author here particularly means the Psalter, the other Psalms that this Psalm introduces, delight in them, meditate on them day and night. Do you find them worthy of that? The blessed man walking in God's way does. He finds God's word, these psalms, worthy of study, of attention, of consideration, and of affection and love. He, he sees and receives their wisdom and their beauty. C.S. Lewis described the Psalms as the language of a man ravished by moral beauty. Are we looking at God's word closely and carefully enough to even find that kind of beauty? Or do we give it a cursory glance, a Sunday morning review during the sermon, and then set it aside to deal with more important things that have really captured our affection? Verse 2 highlights how God's word and the Psalms are intended to engage both the head and the heart. A right approach to scripture affects what we think and what we feel. And that dual-pronged impact should be evident to those around us. It should be evident in our witness to others. Do those around you, Christian or not, see in you peace of mind and of heart? Can they see confidence of faith and steadiness of feeling? If they do, it's because it comes from delight in the law of the Lord and regular meditation upon it. Bookish Christian, it's not enough to study the word. We must love it. Emotional Christian, it's not enough to have fond feelings towards Scripture. You've got to dig into the depths of its riches. Bible scholar James Johnson said the foundation is to spend time reading God's Word. You can't be deeply influenced by something you don't know. And he gives a list of suggestions from his own life. When I pray at the end of my devotions, I try to pray two or three things that stood out to me from Scripture. This helps reinforce things I can think about all day. Or, or write down a verse or two on a post-it note and keep it in your pocket. 
Set a daily alarm on your watch to remind you to think about God's word throughout the day. And he concludes, there's no substitute for memorizing God's word. When I wake up at night worrying, afraid, or feeling sorry for myself, God sends me light in the darkness through the word that I have committed to memory. I know many of you have found that to be true. A light in the literal darkness of our fitful sleep. Love for God's word with the head and the heart, that's the way to blessedness. The first simile used in the Psalms is for this life of blessedness, and it's a tree. It's not a wild tree. It's one carefully planted by streams of water. The dominant imagery for our ministry has always been a tree because it's alive and it's growing, because it's rooted and it's firmly established, because it's beautiful and it's productive. Are those what you want your life to be? This is the way. This tree and the blessed life yields its fruit in due season. There's some debate among scholars how much should be read into that phrase, but I tend to agree with those who think it's about the ability to produce the right virtue in the right time. The tree that is firmly planted has patience in time of suffering, faith in the day of trial, joy in the hour of prosperity, thanksgiving in seasons of plenty, peace in turmoil, mercy when wronged, gentleness when falsely accused, strength in temptation, and humility in leadership. Rooted in God's word and with love for what it says and the one who said it, the blessed man's leaf does not wither. And all that he does He prospers, and because he's rooted in God's word, this understanding of prosperity is aligned with God's. Prosperity is not the absence of suffering in this life. Prosperity is the glory that comes from the godliness by which we stand with Christ on the last day. And that's why the wicked, verse 4, are not so. Scholars point out that the psalm doesn't merely describe the lifestyle of the wicked. It shows the fruit of that way of life. We have a sense of the way of the wicked already, the opposite of the the way of the blessed. They do stand in the way of sinners and sit in the seat of scoffers. But here the psalm unpacks the fruit, the result of that way of life. Because there is no fruit. There's only chaff. When grain is crushed on the threshing floor, the farmer scoops it up into the air and lets gravity and the wind do the work. The heavy grains fall back down to the floor, but the chaff, the the husks and the scraps, these are so light they're carried away by the wind or they clump together in the corner and are easily burned. What's the opposite of a firmly rooted tree bearing its fruit in due season? It's 
chaff is carried away and burned. Chaff is weightless and fruitless and worthless. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. If you stand in the way of sinners, you will not withstand the judgment of God. The way of blessedness is separated from ungodliness and wickedness. And without that distance from the world, we cannot love God with our hearts and minds. We cannot walk in the way. Because that way, filled with sin and leading to death, that's not a way that God knows, not in an experiential and intimate sense. God knows the way of the righteous, for it's his way. We need his word to know him, because without his word, we imagine him to be something else, something too much like us. But he doesn't need his word to know the way. And even more than our need to know the way is our need for him to know us. We need him to know us in redemption and in new life. His knowledge of us and his keeping us along the way is how we have faith and hope despite our circumstances. The way of the wicked will perish like chaff. They are blown away and burn up with fire. Life that is lived too close to the world, walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, such a life cannot withstand the judgment. Now, I admit, I haven't actually watched The Mandalorian since season one. But I'm told that season three was all about the title character attempting to redeem himself from his transgressions against the way. Mando was a really good dude. But no one can keep the way perfectly. And that should make us a bit uncomfortable with Psalm 1. All the verbs are in what's called perfect tense meaning they describe the blessed as they always are. They have delighted in the law of the Lord in the past. They are delighting in the law of the Lord now. They will delight in it always. They have not walked in the counsel of the wicked in the past. They are not doing so now, and they will not ever. The blessed man of Psalm 1 is without sin. There was a story in several of the commentaries I used this week about a Bible teacher named Joseph Flax. He was visiting Palestine in the early 20th century, and he was teaching a small crowd of Jews and Arabs that had gathered, and he had read Psalm 1 and was talking through it. And he asked them, who is the blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? Who is the man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked, who was absolutely sinless? And they didn't disagree with him. They're better Hebrew scholars than he was. They know what Psalm 1 says. And so it was silent. And he asked if it was Abraham. And someone said, no, it can't be Abraham. He denied his wife and lied about her identity. 
What about the lawgiver, Moses? <laughs> no, he was a murderer. And he lost his temper and patience by the waters of Meribah. But David, Elijah, on down the list he went until he had exhausted the names and the small crowd stood there in silence. Incidentally, we're no better off. One teacher's description seems pretty right to me. Indeed, we so want to be affirmed in the way we have chosen that we lash out at anyone who goes another way. Mockery makes us feel better about our own life choices. And we do not really believe that blessing comes in the way described here and in no other way. And therefore, destruction is our destiny. So after exhausting the list of Old Testament saints, the story goes that the crowd had become silent until an elderly Jewish man arose and said, my brothers, I have a little book here I've been reading. It's called the New Testament. And if I could believe this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of Psalm 1 was Jesus of Nazareth. He's right. Jesus was the only man in all of history who fully lived out the way of Psalm 1. And it's his obedience and his blessedness that become ours by faith through union with him. This is the good news. That Jesus has kept Psalm 1 spares us from the self-righteousness of pretending that we have kept it. And from the hopelessness we feel deep down because we know that we have not. If you want to know how to apply Psalm 1, it better begin with seeing Christ as the keeper of the way. The fulfillment of the psalm. And it's on purpose. It's the introductory gate to all the Psalms because it's teaching us that Christ is the perfect speaker of all the Psalms. He bears the mark of the blessed man. His voice calls out with love of God and moral perfection from every human circumstance. And only when we grasp that in Christ alone, my hope is found. Only when we grasp that can we then resolve to walk with him in the way, growing more and more in obedience by grace. Yes, the Psalms are here for that. The Psalms are here to teach us to recognize and imitate Christ's voice. But first, we have to hear and humbly acknowledge that he is the keeper of the way and that without him, we would perish in our sins. Only then can the instruction of Psalm 1 benefit us as it guides us along his way. It does do that. It does teach us that sides must be taken in life, that there's no middle way where we can please the world and God. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot say that we love God and yet live with love for the world. It does teach us that. 
And in Christ, it teaches us to also be keepers of the way who will stand with him in the day of his coming, living for him and with him in blessedness. I love the old saying that it's a rich sign of inward grace when the outward walk is changed. That gets the order right. We need the work of inward grace and we see that work by the change in our walk. We can, through growth by grace, walk more closely with God. We can grow like that tree planted by streams of water. Don't you long to have the right fruit in due season? Don't you want patience to come forth from you when it's required and wisdom when it's needed and forgiveness when it's timely? Psalm 1 instructs and inspires us to approach all the Psalms with humble hearts and with willing minds. And it should make us eager to put more of this scripture into more parts of our daily lives, to meditate on it, to memorize it, and to treat it like the treasure that it is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Use scripture for your good. And start with Psalm 1. I'll close with this. When deeply troubled by the pressures of a world that insists we conform, the spirit of Jesus within us will use our praying of this psalm to stiffen our determination to be different. When struggling with a cold legalism, the spirit of Jesus will use this psalm to rekindle a delighted love of God's law in our hearts. When anxious, and tempted to two-time God, professing to be Christians while hedging our bets and still worshiping the world's gods, this psalm will deepen our confidence that the way of Jesus, the Psalm 1 way, is indeed the only good way, the only way to blessedness. Christians, this, this is the way.